0: Hello and welcome to All Indians Matter. I'm Ashraf Engineer. Worldwide, we are witnessing women with disabilities establishing their identity despite challenging social conditions. However, that journey is very different in developing countries such as India. Women with disabilities face multiple challenges that add to the very complex gender issues all women battle every day. The challenges women with disabilities face range from social discrimination and stigma to even violence. What can be done to change that reality?
1: all indians matter
0: we have on the show nidhi goel founder and executive director of the award winning non-profit organization rising flame which works on leadership and rights of women and persons with disabilities nidhi has been working on disability rights and gender justice for 12 years at the global national and grassroots level through research writing, training, policy influence and art. She is part of the steering committee of the C20 under India's G20 presidency and has been instrumental in creating the historic Disability Equity Justice Working Group within the C20. Nidhi has been appointed to the core group of persons with disabilities by the National Human Rights Commission of India and has steered leading global women's rights organization, AWID, as the youngest and first ever disabled president. And she was a global advisor to the UN Women's Executive Director. But on a more personal note, Nidhi was my colleague for a while at the Hindustan Times and I'm delighted to have her on the show. Nidhi, welcome.
1: Hi, Ashraf. So lovely to be here. So excited to have this conversation with you.
0: Nidhi, what are the daily challenges women with disabilities face in India?
1: I think the first challenge that women with disabilities face anywhere in the world is to be identified as women. Um, And I think it speaks a lot. Just to think about who is a woman and if you say women's rights, uh, women need to have this kind of access. Women with disabilities are not counted in. And I think that visibility, that acceptance, even before we go to what are the schemes, policies, to, is there access, is, you know, can they participate before even going there? Do women with disabilities exist in our data, in our society, in our schools, in our colleges, in our hearts and minds is one of the major challenges. It's really, really very often, um, that women with disabilities are asked saying, "Oh, do you want to?" If you're talking about rights-based movements, um, they're often asked saying, "Would you rather go to the disability movement or the women's rights movement?"
0: Right, and you know, just keeping with social challenges, could you elaborate on them? And do you recall any from personal experience?
1: I think uh, the stand-up comedian in me wants to respond in a very different way and the activist in me wants to respond in a very different way. (laughs) So let's Um, have
0: both. (laughs) We are very fine with multiple personalities on the show. Absolutely fine. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Ashraf. So I think the first challenge is, um, you know, some of the social challenges are that you start infantilizing women with disabilities. I mean, culturally, when we look at conservative cultures, and I wouldn't say just India, um, and I wouldn't say all of India, right? But when you're looking at conservative cultures, there is a tendency to already infantilize women themselves, um, that you think that they are not capable of taking decisions, living independently, uh, having a life, having work, being, you know, financial contributors to society uh, and to economies. And I think that's where you begin for women with disabilities even more, because, of course, in society's mind, there are women and they are disabled. It becomes like a high Taubah situation, right? Um, and I think it's a very, very, um, that's the basic thing. And what happens when you infantilize someone? You, you, you automatically take away their decision making powers when they enter in, in a room. Um, you know, the funny thing is that when I enter a room, um, many a times, if I'm holding someone's hand, the person gets asked saying, uh, would she have a glass of water? Would she like to eat something? Is she hungry? Um, and to me, you can imagine as as, as, as a um, global champion of disability rights, as an adult, just forget everything else. It's hilarious when you do that. So I find it funny. I don't find it stigmatizing. I feel like really poor you that you don't know that I could respond to these things. You don't know if I feel hungry or not. So I think the social challenge is first tantalizing, The second is incapability. And the third is burden. And here is where I come to a very serious thing, that the assumption that a woman is a burden, but a disabled woman is surely a burden to society. Um, I'd end, you know, just to respond with a quick uh, personal anecdote, since you asked me uh, a personal story, and I say this in many forums. My father, when I was diagnosed, was told that he should hide my disability. I was diagnosed with an irreversible, incurable eye disorder at 15, And he was told 18 is a legal age, hide her disability, quietly get her married, otherwise she will be a burden on you for the rest of your life. Um, Of course, he didn't do that. He empowered me, made me realize that I have choices and enabled me that I take my own decisions, make my choices and then live with them. Uh, But I think that's this very, very, very critical uh, assumption, social stigma, social behavior that then shadows everything as part of life, of
0: so women with disabilities. Niti, what is the psychological impact of the experiences that you've described on women with disabilities?
1: I mean, Ashraf, just for a minute, if you can imagine that you're constantly isolated, that you're constantly told um, that you don't deserve joy, you don't deserve to live. It begins with, you know, you could have just taken, and, and in front of the toddler, the child who can comprehend, it's told that it would have been better if she died instead of being born. Right, we at Rising Flame run these uh, leadership programs, and I remember that one of the fellows said that I, I, I had friends, but I didn't know why they were friends with me. You know, because they were getting brownie points with the teachers. Um, fellows or students or young people have come and told us young women that they were continuously isolated at home so if there was a social function they were kept out of it they were ostracized if there was somebody coming at home it was it's basically like a shame you know we we talk about not being counted enough um that disabled women are not the numbers are not right but it's not just the people who come for surveying right who are not trained enough etc the problem is also with society because often when If you ask someone, they'll say, no, 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 my daughter is not disabled. She only has a little bit of a problem, right? She's only little limping. Oh, no, no, she only sees little less. No, she's almost blind. Um, She hears little less. So it's constant isolation, shame. And I think a lot of continuously saying you are not good enough. And why are you not good enough? Because of gender stereotyping. Because we believe that women are supposed to be caregivers. Women have certain roles and the assumption is that, oh, you're disabled. How will you look after your children? And it starts from there. It doesn't start from, can you study? It starts from, you are a you are a girl child who's born with a disability. Your future is finished because you cannot... Assumption is you will not be able to take care of your children. And then it goes backwards saying, and you'll not be a fit wife. And Acha you'll not be able to contribute to society. Oh my God, now we'll have to go out and drop you also because somebody will abuse you. But I mean, how many women in this country get abused? It's not Or How many women in the world get abused? Uh, Why are we blaming the women? And why are we blaming women with disabilities? And why does control... Or inadequacy, or why is the blame shifted on them? So I think a lot of deeper questions to unravel. With simple sort of, I can say isolation, stigma, ostracization, constant feeling of inadequacy. But adequacy. But I think the problem is much more larger uh, or bigger than what we can imagine.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think there's there's a lot to think about. But really, my impression. Is that the mainstream disability rights movement in India is male-dominated? Now, is that true? And are women disability activists ensuring that the lived realities of women are actually being seen and discussed?
1: So there are there are a couple of things to consider, Ashraf. I mean, we've not done nationwide surveys, right? What when we say areas or sectors are male-dominated, we want to say that the leadership opportunities the opportunity to control resources. When we say something is male-dominated, when we say society is male-dominated, we're not trying to say that the number of men is larger than the number of women, right? What we're trying to say is who takes the decision, who's the leader, who's seen as the head, and who controls the resources. And this largely across um, countries and particularly in Global South in the disability rights movement, because it's seen as an ungendered movement, right? the problem within disability or, you know, the external gaze towards the disability rights movement is that they don't need to talk about gender. Forget about how the movement functions. The external understanding first is that there is no gender issue because it is about disability. No, there is a gender component. Very often I get asked, uh, which movement do I belong to? You know, it's a bit like, which ministry do you want to go to? And I still remember it's really hilarious because, you know, as a woman with a disability, And this is not just in India, it's in so many countries, you know, when we have global consultations, global trainings with women with disabilities, it's often the thing that women from Africa, from Europe, from other places will be telling you that we're shunned from ministry to ministry. If we go to the social justice or equivalent of that, we're told, "Okay, because you're disabled, you need to go there. The minute you go there, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. Did you say accessible toilets? Did you say sanitation? Oh, did you say menstrual health? Did you say sexual health? Did you say reproductive health? Please go to the women's ministry. And I'm like, but we're talking about access to reproductive health services, which falls under accessibility. And they're like, yeah, but accessibility of hospitals, we can tell you, but not about it. I mean, and these are conversations that if you go to a woman from South Asia, anywhere, these will resonate. And I think that's that's really um, where we're seeing the the gap of why there is male domination, because we see it very ungendered. And here is where, um, you know, when we and we often say that you invest in women leadership, right? We know, Ashraf, that globally now women leadership has become an important integral part of leadership work or of gender work or of companies, organizations, corporates, NGOs, etc., um, you won't believe it. In 2019, when we launched a Rising Flame, the I Can Lead program, it was the first ever national level program investing in women with disabilities. So, it is I Can Lead is a national leadership program for women with disabilities. And we, I was actually shocked to see that it was the first ever, right? And these are things that somebody comes and tells you, saying, "Oh my God, you're the first ever." man. let's wait. Sorry, what? Yes, of course, it's the first ever because we do not see that investing in disabled women to bring that level playing field to fill up the lacuna the lack of investment that society families organizations education institutions do for them um we really as need to collectively commit to that and once we commit to women with disabilities leadership you'll already see um see see that even within the disability movement but if i have to say you know there's no blanket yes or no because if you see ashraf and i'm really humble right because within civil 20 um India kept speaking about G20 um, being bold, ambitious, being talking about women-led development. In fact, G20 India was one of the champions and has been negotiating with other countries to adopt this language of not women-inclusive development, but women-led development. And there within Civil20, in this historic disability working group, first of all, they agreed to establish a disability working group, which has never been done before in any of the countries. And then they hand it over the reins to a disabled woman, which is me. So I think there is, things are shifting. We see it in the movement. We see it in policy. We see it in companies. But we want to say that it's not enough. And the speed at which it's shifting is definitely not enough.
0: That actually, I think that's a great point. And that actually brings me to my next question. Do you think there's enough research around the lives of women with disabilities?
1: Um. <laughs> it's interesting because there is research. I don't want to say there's enough research amount, but there is research. But research in which area, right? Um, we always see women with disabilities as a separate thing, Ashra. I think what's important is that, like our data, our research also needs to get inclusive. Um, so when we're looking at, and there are so many studies, right, on girl or, or, or few studies, upcoming studies on technology ownership by women, Why can't we just have disaggregated or include women with disabilities and gather that data as well? If we are studying dropout of girl children because of lack of toilets, why can't we add and say dropout of girl children with disabilities because because of lack of accessible toilets? So I think what we need is not just specific research, but inclusive research around girls and women with disabilities, which really says that... You know, th- these are also girls who we need to think about. So, just building a toilet is not okay. That toilet needs to be accessible. Just building, providing a school bus is not okay. It needs to be accessible. What? Just building a cell, uh, an internal complaints committee, or a cell within a company is not okay. The information there given out needs to be accessible. And I think that's where we need to foster research or even strengthen that kind of data collection.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Nidhi, I asked the earlier question because data is important. In fact, most of the state's macro-level data gathering efforts, apart from the census, do not actually incorporate disability. Often when data is gathered, it is not disaggregated by gender even. Now, this makes it impossible to develop a comprehensive understanding of the problem of disability and its gender implications. The last census in 2011, put the number of women with disabilities at 11.8 million out of a total disabled population of 26.8 million. That was 2.1% of the total population. Mm -hmm. Now, most observers think that Mm -hmm. is an undercount. The WHO, the World Health Organization, for instance, estimates that 15% of any population, any population Mm -hmm. can be presumed to have disabilities. Mm -hmm. What is your view on all this?
1: My view is that we're not um, counting enough, surely, right? Like you said, WHO, uh, the latest report says 1.3 billion persons in the world live with a disability, right? That's uh, 1.3 billion.
0: That's equivalent right? to just under or the population of India. Population
1: in of, correct, correct. So we're talking about that kind of numbers, right? Where In that, they say the prevalent rate of women with disabilities is 19.2 we're almost looking at one in five, right? And then we look at the census collected data, which says a little over two. We also have to mark that from 2011 to now, we've had a very progressive disability law, the number of recognized disabilities have increased. So actually the next census is really important for us to give us that comprehensive outlook on the data. Um, The data is definitely undercounted. It's not just you know, it's it's even if trainings are given to the surveyors, um, it's very often, and I am again reminded of a stand-up joke that I have, um, where the census taker comes home and this woman's like trying to tell him that I'm disabled. And he's like, No, but you you live in such a fantastic locality. She's like, But what does that mean? And and, and he says, No, no, but you're educated, right? And she's like, Yes, but I'm also disabled. And the surveyor would not listen. He's like, But you're also married, you're also employed. So it really showcases the levels of, you know, where do we assume that disability would exist, right? What is our stigma on multiple levels? Are we linking poverty with disability, illiteracy with disability? What are we trying to say? So very often, and culturally, right, we don't go and ask someone in census or any data, particularly people are hesitant saying, Ari, how can we ask if they're disabled? But I can tell you that every day on the road, if people ask, Ari, what happened to you? so curiosity wise we can ask as a community but like (laughs) so if you're very hesitant to say oh do you have any family member who's disabled but also like i said people are not disclosing right
0: yeah that's absolutely right that's what you said earlier also that i was actually going to say that that even in the census i think people often don't actually disclose if there's a disability no and the other thing was interesting the
1: second thing
0: In which you said that, you know, oh, you happen yes, to be married, or you happen to be educated, or you happen to live in a great house. So it's almost as if that neutralizes your disability, which is absurd. It does not. You still need access. You still need empowerment.
1: Yeah. So I think it's, it's important. I think data is important. I think we're falling way behind. But I do want to say, right, Ashraf, I think we really need a state commitment. We need the central um, commitment, but also state-level commitment within the country. I mean, just to say that the National Family Health Survey is now pulling off, has pulled off all disability questions. So with a lot of effort, they had started collecting disability disaggregated data and now it's not going to be there, saying that the data is not effective. But we need to strengthen the efficacy of the data rather than pulling out the questions. That's not a solution. To invisibilize. And health is such an important subject for all persons with disabilities. It's not just women with disabilities. So, I think we go one step ahead, half a step back, two steps forward, one step back. And I think that needs to stop. We need to bring that commitment even more strongly around disability data, disaggregated data collection. And again, from all quarters, if you're doing women data collection, then disability disaggregation, um, any other markers. So disaggregated
0: data is the key. Absolutely. Now, like in other low and middle income countries, the majority of persons with disabilities in India, 69% of people with disabilities, reside in rural areas. Uh, This means they lack access to even basic health, education and employment facilities often. And the plight of women with disabilities who are even more disadvantaged in such scenarios is even worse. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: So it is your your data is absolutely correct. In more and minimum income country, majority of people living in rural levels. And this is why we want to not have urbanization of access measures, right? Um of course urban development should look at accessibility measures, but rural development it's really important. It's really important, that's why, um, to bring country context in right, a solution that would work in Europe and US is absolutely not going to work within the rural areas of, let's say, in India, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and, uh, you know, uh, Afghanistan, et cetera. So we really, really need to bring country context solutions while we're adhering to larger na- uh, international frameworks. To give you a small example, um, from our COVID report, um, to talk about inclusive education, or even to talk about Um, Just inclusive education, if I give you that example, right? Everybody got very happy in the city saying, oh my God, remote learning is on, remote working is on. And our only angst was Instagram videos of people doing housework because they're not used to doing housework, which is actually so, you know, it it really, really, I mean, I won't say reaps, but like smells of privilege. And we don't understand. We think it's very cool to put like Instagram videos of doing housework, right? And that was our biggest concern for many people, it was one of the big concerns in COVID. While in rural areas, families who did not have, who barely had mobile phones, right, were trying to see how their kids could get connected. Um, and they had three or five children. And what happened then? They had to prioritize. So obviously, non-disabled children's education for them, and I say obviously because for them it was very obvious, that non-disabled children's education got prioritized over disabled children's education. And even if there were two disabled children, the male child's education got prioritized over the girl child with a disability. The male child with a disability, his education was more important. And it's so, I mean, this is, this is low resource setting, right? This is low resource setting. While we're very happy seeing, oh, education's going on, work is going on, income's going on. What we're missing is stepping out our freedom. There are children from special schools who were sent home and they had absolutely no contact with anybody for two years. We've we've documented a lot of such things around health, around education, within the Neglected and Forgotten report, which is specifically for girls and women with disabilities and the impact of COVID crisis um, at Rising Point.
0: Now Nidhi, I just want to come back to what is recognized as disabilities. In the 2011 census, uh, seven types of disabilities were recognized and these were around movement, seeing, hearing, speech. Mental retardation and those are the words of the census. It's not my words, so I'm using that word. Mental illness and multiple disabilities. Now, as you said, since then we've had a significant progress in disability laws. How do you expand the okay. list further and why?
1: I think taking the definitions of CRPD and understanding disability from that framework would be would may not require a listing of disability, right? We're still using very functionality frameworks for listing disabilities uh, in terms of cannot see, cannot walk, um, these kinds of things. But I think CRPD defines it a little more broadly and that so does WHO. Um, WHO has other, uh, health organizations will always have other issues that they define, but I think what really becomes important, um, and the way we, if we use the Washington Census questions, which are these very scientifically designed set of, uh, set of questions, uh, to collect data, we will be able to gather how disability is impacting people's lives and who we have not included in the list of disabilities. Because if you just keep listing conditions, it's going to become really challenging. There will always be groups that are left out, and there are groups that are left out. We saw it in in the earlier law in 1995. We see it in 2016 as well. But just to also be on the bright side, Ashraf, that we have expanded. We have become empathetic. Our law is one of the most progressive laws um, globally, right? And so we have much to celebrate. What is really lacking is the implementation of the law. And I again come back to the state level because disability becomes a state subject in India. I think what is important is not expanding further, what is important is to even implement, to even recognize, to even just make the certification process easier, the UDID process easier, think about disabilities um, even within the list and facilitate those processes. I think thinking and implementing that would already make lives of millions of people much, much, much better. Um, Yeah.
0: Uh, Didi, we spoke a little bit about lack of accessibility for people with disabilities. And I think that's a primary goal of the disability rights movement. Now, there's also an attitudinal issue here, which you touched upon from time to time during our conversation. Could you expand a little bit on that and uh, how that leads to the denial of rights? And was all this more acute during the COVID 19 pandemic?
1: Let me give you some quick examples, Ashraf, right? Um, and you will see, I mean, just from families, you will see that the first thing is, why should we even educate this girl yet? right? So you can have all the fantastic laws and policies in place, but the family decides that this, this girl is not worth taking to school. Attitudinal barrier, right? When a girl or woman is raped, we see that often the blame is on the woman. When it's a disabled woman, the blame is that she's not just raped. We don't even know she's quote unquote mad. We don't know if she went away on her own, right? Okay, she's pointing fingers, but she's quote unquote mad. Tomorrow, she, today she's pointing at this person. Tomorrow she'll point at that person. So law is in place. The criminal law amendment after the Nirbhaya case, the amendment that happened, is a terrific amendment. It 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 looks at needs of women with disabilities, how to address them specific, but right from families to the justice system, actors, everybody holds those kinds of stigma within them. And so their attitudinal barriers creates barriers before the law can create barriers, right? Or if the, the law is very helpful, but the implementation doesn't happen because there is attitudinal barriers. And similarly, so on and so forth, if you just look at every walk of life, and that is why when people say, what is the one thing that would help? The one thing that would help is first the attitudinal shift. If we think that these are girls and women who need dignity respect and need to be equally participating in society you will automatically shift a lot of things you'll start finding solutions right you if you start believing that young people with disabilities young women with disabilities can contribute to the economy you'll automatically create jobs for them like how we have focus on youth how we have focus on women um beti padhao right but society doesn't think that these are betis these are burdens, and so that's where I would I would I mean to just keep it very brief. But attitude is the beginning of a lot of um, issues, and immediately and and one you know a few things that I can tell you is um, just in we we within the disability rights movement say that banking apps are not accessible, uh, websites e-commerce websites are not accessible. Why are they not accessible? Why are they not developed with the uh, web accessibility guidelines, which are very simple. They don't add on your cost. They don't compromise on your design. But very few people invest in learning, right? We Websites today make it as user-friendly as possible so that more and more people come. But why don't they make it as as accessible as possible? Because disabled, disabled people are not seen as their customers. Why? Because they just imagine that we're not customers, that we're not earning. So today, Ashraf, I can earn. I can live an independent life, I have that potential, but I can't because the closest grocery app, which functions in my city very effectively for others, is inaccessible for me, right? And so where's the problem? Is it with me or my potential or my capability like people question, or is it with the system? Is it with the e-commerce websites? Is it with the public apps? Is it with the payment gateways? Um, where is the problem exactly? It's with the mindset and that is why we don't invest in making all of these experiences inclusive and accessible
0: nidhi i want to talk a little bit about affirmative action now i know we have reservations in for various things for people with disabilities which is affirmative action but that does obviously that's not solve the entire problem of accessibility rights etc which you've elaborated upon is there a policy gap and if yes what more needs to be done
1: I think, Ashraf, for me, the first gap is the implementation gap. I think we can bring out more and more and more papers. But I think that we don't have the commitment towards implementation. The second gap is the budgetary gap. Um, sorry, I'm deviating from your question.
0: Not um, at all. Budgetary gap is uh, policy gap too. Once we have
1: both these, then we can think about building more policies. You know, budgetary and implementation, if we don't do, I mean, budget is a key part of implementation. But if we don't have those commitments, how are we going to make it a reality? Going back to the RPWD Act, right, which mentions that discrimination, violence and abuse is not okay. There are penal provisions and all of that. Where is that happening? Right? So I think the, the gap is that. Where is the policy gap? I think is in the private sector. So do all schools have inclusion policies? Do all companies have inclusion policies? Are they being rated for that? Are you know? Do all companies have inclusion policies with spans, including women with disabilities? I mean, I was at a recent um, within Civil Twenty as a part of the leader of the disability group. We collaborated with Empower Twenty that looks at women in the private sector, and we were looking at women with disabilities in the world of work. And I was raising questions like, of course, the internal complaints committees that I mentioned, but also. If you're a company that thinks about maternal health or maternity leaves and, uh, you know, women coming back after delivery back to work and you're really progressive and building creches, have you got an access audit done of those creches? Do you have policies to make all facilities available for women and persons with disabilities within your companies? So I think in the public sector, I would look at implementation and budgetary commitments. And in the private sector, I would look at building policies and committing to those. Um, But these would be the first steps that I would look at to make inclusion a reality.
0: There's also the question of awareness. Uh, It's a key issue. How can we raise that?
1: Asha, this is like, oh, um, (laughs) it's a rapid fire round for me. How do we raise awareness? Um, I think by looking around. (laughs) I really want to say, you know, I'm blind, do that Asha, very well, I am do don't we? mind, you know, people are like, oh my God, don't call yourself blind. I'm like, I'm blind, but I can still see the." <laughs> no, so I'm blind, but I can still see the inaccessibilities and the discrimination around me. I think the minute we start seeing, right, that is important. I think we're not seeing enough. you really think there's no disability in our lives, so if you take a room full of people Asha, and ask them if they've had um, if they know one person with a disability, often they'll either have a friend, a cousin, a distant family member, somebody. We're just not acknowledging them. Our problem is that we don't want to become aware. And I, I'm often very soft and say, people are trying." <laughs> I'm nicer, um, but sometimes I feel like we don't want to be aware, become aware, because it's easier, right? It's neat and clean in our little tight box. Um, we don't have to think to. So I think that the change begins from us. And I'm really grateful that you've, you know, because it's really all Indians matter. So when all Indians matter, where are this significant number of Indians? Why aren't we asking that question to ourselves? Why aren't we trying to, uh, when Bollywood shows us, how many of us really thought if there were dyslexic students in our college or institutions? Did we extend that one ounce of empathy towards them? I think I think really a lot of questioning that we need to do for ourselves. We're doing a lot, um, and media needs to play a key role. I mean, media ends up stereotyping disability more than so. Shifting the imagery is extremely important. So I've, I've I of course said the private and the public sector. I left the media out, um, but I think this is a time for media to step in and don't try and make stories that you think would sell, try and make stories that are real and how will you get those real stories is by having people with disabilities at the table, not just in policies, but in your films, in your television soaps, in your novels, um, in your publications.
0: Absolutely. Niti, tell us about the journey of Rising Flame and the work that it does.
1: Um, it's so close to my heart that I wouldn't be enough, <laughs> Ashraf, but um, Rising Flames really, you know, um, it got conceptualized and was literally born in 2017. But I think the journey of Rising Flame began much, much, much before when I was a really young person, losing sight, becoming disabled, transitioning from this non-disabled world into a disabled world. Um, And where my spiritual guru, uh, my master or spiritual guru, Shri Guru Dr. Balaji Dambi, he made me aware of my own privilege, Um, you know, not to sit around and ask the question why, but to also look at my own privilege and see what I could do for others like me. Um, I think that commitment, that shift in the thought process from I can't see to how can we collectively build a society where all people can live together. I think that transition happened then. And the commitment of bringing a collective, a group to work on this, um, to commit my life uh, happened then. So it was really when I was 16, 17, something like that. But Rising Flame in the past five years has really, really, and I think the important thing about Rising Flame, first, before I talk about its work, is that the mantra of the disability movement so with the women's movement and other movements, there's nothing about us without us. And Rising Flame really lives and breathes this, right? In 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 the five years, majority of our staff, our team, our advisors, um, people work with us, and that's why we don't say that persons with disabilities is our beneficia- are our beneficiaries, right? No, they are our community who we work with, live with, work for, and with, live with, friends with, colleagues of. Etc. So we are a self-led team, which means people, majority people from the community, and women, non-binary persons, um, queer persons with disabilities are form for an integral part of our team. And we bring our commitment, our life's commitment, into the work, building the capacities of women and youth with disabilities, of persons with disabilities. So twofold work, really of first, investing in women, youth, and persons with disabilities, building, bringing, building their capacities, and second, altering the ecosystem, publishing research to reach policymakers, conducting trainings for actors who are around, coming up with manuals for, let's say, the mental health professionals. Really, really influencing the ecosystem because without this twofold effort, we don't think that we can move towards our vision of social integration, of building safe, accessible, and inclusive societies around the world.
0: What about the C20 Steering Committee? How did you become part of that, and what are its objectives?
1: Um, I think the Civil20, I mean, just to also tell people who are not aware of the Civil20, is that G20 Um, has many official engagement groups, and Civil 20 is a space for civil society actors. I really feel that, I mean, my appointment to the uh, Civil 20 Steering Committee or invitation, whichever you may call it, uh, was really on the basis of the work, the decade-plus work that I've been doing at multiple levels, at the grassroots national as well as global levels, Uh, but also as a woman with a disability leading some of this work. Uh, having the opportunity because of our Indonesian colleagues to be a part and contribute to the Civil 20 Indonesia, which was a previous presidency, and to be a part of this key process and to take it ahead building the country. Um, the Civil 20 objectives are basically to amplify voices of people and reach it to the policy you know That's why it's Civil 20 for civil society. And As my role within, you know, as Civil 20 steering committee member, as a woman with a disability, as a civil society actor, as an NGO head, as um, someone working on disability rights, I could negotiate, navigate, converse, and have our Civil 20 leaders um, establish or agree to the establishment of a separate standalone space for persons with disabilities so that their voices our voices could be amplified um, and taken note of, um, to really, 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 when we say policies need to be visionary, they need to be ambitious, they need to be bold, but also sustainable and inclusive and resilient without the inclusion of persons with disabilities, this would not have happened. And I'm really happy to be doing this dual role as a steering committee member, as well as the leader of the Disability Equity Justice Working Group and we, you know, have have had uh, to contribute to the establishment of this working group, which platforms and coming back to the data, which gives a platform to 1.3 billion persons and their voices within the issues that G20 would consider for economic growth and development.
0: So Nidhi, here's a question I ask all my guests at the end of the show. Why do you do this work?
1: Why do I do this work? (laughs) Existential question.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) I do this work because I think I made a commitment to a younger self of mine. I do this work on a lighter note to say because in spite of being blind, I can see what's happening around me. But also I do this work because... I really feel that this this work needs to be done. Leadership needs to be taken. And I almost feel that it is a responsibility that comes with my privilege. The privilege of being an urban, educated, um, sensitive, supported, so supported by others, a young woman with a disability. I feel that that privilege brings its whole set of responsibilities uh, with with itself, and I do this work because I feel it's my responsibility to do this work. It's my responsibility as a salute to the privilege, as an honor to the community, which people think needs a lot, but you should really be a part of the disability community to know how much this community gives to each other. Disabled people who often succeed are standing on the shoulders, advice, support, and mentoring of many other disabled people. And I'm very happy to be these shoulders for many, many, many more.
0: Nidhi, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show and it was an absolute pleasure seeing you again after all these years. Uh, Thanks for making the time.
1: Thank you so much, Ashraf, for having me. It was such a joy chatting with you. And I'm sure, you know, through this platform, many more who are listening will know that each of them can make that difference. Each of them can bring accessibility and inclusion in this world. Um, To know more and to get connected with us, uh, I'd like to just reach out to the listeners here to say um, you can volunteer and support Rising Plain in our work. You can join our lovely, lovely community, and contribute in multiple ways. You can find us at www.risingflame.org or on all social media handles at Rising Flame. Now,
0: thank you all for listening. Please visit allindiansmatter.in, that's a double dot i n for more columns and audio podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashraf Engineer that's A-S-H-R-A-F-E-N-G-I-N-W-E-R and All Indians Count that's a double l I n d i a n s c o u n t. Search for the All Indians Matter page on Facebook. On Instagram, the handle is All Indians Matter. Email me at editor at allindiansmatter.in. Catch you again soon.